Oh, well, good afternoon. My name is Matthew Leonard and I'm a PhD student at the University of Bristol studying modern conflict archaeology. My doctoral thesis is exploring how man interacted with the subterranean worlds of the Western Front. And today I'd like to talk to you about the unique conflict culture that developed on the front lines during the First World War. Some 98 years on from its beginning, when we think of the First World War, the individual's role is often subjugated in favour of the masses. Battles tend to be described in terms of body count. The many cemeteries across France and Belgium are variously known for their size. And vast monuments to the dead and the missing silently remind us what the effects were of industrial weaponry on the human body. Contemporary film footage and photographs of the war's belligerents inform our view of the conflict. Yet these are invariably unreliable or misleading. All visual material was strictly controlled, and often imagery showing soldiers going over the top appears to have been taken from above the surface. Yet any cameraman that was foolish enough to stand out in the open and take that footage is unlikely to have lived to tell the tale, and nor is his equipment, meaning that usually this type of footage was filmed away from the horrors of combat. The question that must be asked then is how much do we really know about the experience of the average individual soldier during the conflict. When compared to our knowledge of the weaponry, tactics and battles of the war, the answer proves to be somewhat unsatisfactory. And this is predominantly because the traditional approach to the study of the conflict has not allowed room for an anthropological perspective. Yet to fully appreciate the events that took place, not to mention the legacy of a global war, it is imperative that we explore the life of the soldier how he survived, how he interacted with his environment, and how he came to understand the killing fields of France, Belgium and beyond. An obvious reality, yet one that is often overlooked, is that almost all life on the front lines was conducted below the surface of the earth. Of course, men would leave the sanctity of the trenches to attack the enemy en masse, conduct raids, repair defences, or bring in the wounded and the dead. But they would always return to the safety of the earth, burrowing ever deeper into the ground to escape the inferno that raged on the surface. Yet the belly of the earth is not man's natural domain, and the way in which human beings structure and order our existence implicitly relies on a comprehensive understanding of our habitat. And accordingly, over the millennia, our senses have developed an intimate relationship with our environment, which allows us to ably conduct our everyday life. Indeed, this theory can be traced back to the time of Aristotle, who said that our senses have a special relationship with the elements that make up our world. And later, Karl Marx stated that the forming of the five senses is a labour of the entire history of the world down to the present. But in the Western world, the higher senses of sight and hearing have assumed a dominant role in everyday life. Indeed, in Europe, during the medieval and Renaissance eras, the lower senses of touch, smell and taste were relegated to those of the animal, frowned upon and given little credit to the success of the human race. So with this in mind, it's pertinent to ask how it was that millions of men managed to survive in a landscape so alien to them that it had more in common with medieval visions of hell than it did with contemporary notions of modern 20th century Europe. The long-established Western relationship between the human centres and the environment no longer applied in places such as the Western Front. So perceived notions of society and culture had to be adapted by millions of men on all sides as they grouped together in a terrifying and lethal world. 
For on the front lines of modern war, life was not conducted in the realm of man, but in the domain of the animal, in a world built of rock and mud, darkness and danger, fear and instinct. So when contemplating how this conflict culture of the First World War was able to exist, it's pertinent to look outside of the traditional European concepts of society and culture. As Westerners, we live very ordered lives, directed by the various facets of democracy, capitalism and wealth, and our senses are tuned accordingly. The majority of our streets and homes are lit, heated, sanitised and safe. Modern shops sell us our wares in carefully designed manners. Traffic is strictly ordered on our roads and society is kept in check by visual signs and systems of law and order. Because of this life structure, we predominantly use our eyes to direct us through life, while the senses of touch and smell are often relegated to a secondary status, only coming to the fore when we are in an abnormal situation. In effect, what we see is our reality. But in other parts of the world, disparate cultures have embraced incomparable methods of relating to and engaging with their environment. For example, the Totsil of Mexico order their society according to temperature, not sight. The Totsil believe that humans acquire more heat throughout their lives, reaching a thermal peak just before their deaths. Acts such as marriage or baptism increase heat and therefore power and even illness is measured in terms of temperature. And this may sound somewhat strange to Westerners, but it's not as incomprehensible as it seems. The Totesil's beliefs form a surprising symmetry with modern physics understanding of the universe. Stars, for example, are at their hottest just before the moment of destruction. And the Totesil are by no means unique in the way they appreciate their world. The Ongi of Southeast Asia believe that smell is the fundamental cosmic principle. To the Ongi, illness is a result of too much or too little odour. And their olfactory beliefs govern not only health, but also life, death, hunting, ritual and religion. Different sensorial engagements with the environment can also be seen in pre-Columbian Mesoamerican societies, such as the Aztecs, who lived in a world dominated by light and governed by the life-giving properties of water. Theirs was a multi-sensorial existence in which touch, smell and mystique all played a vital role. And Western ideas of engaging with the world played little or no part in everyday life. And during the First World War II, the idea of sight governing existence was regarded as an alien concept, further showing how misleading film footage and photographs of the daily life at the front would have been in narrating the history of the war. In effect, this media has enabled us to see a conflict that wasn't seen. Along the front lines, it was the perceived animal senses that kept men alive. Existence below the ground was experienced with the whole body, not just the eyes. After all, not much could be seen through trench periscopes or over the parapet. And even aerial photography, something that was used extensively during the war, showed little of the visceral reality on the ground. So in order to survive, the base animal senses soon became dominant. For example, the sound a shell made as it approached could be translated into where it would land or what type of ordnance it was. The deadly gas that infected the front lines could be smelt long before it appeared. And in the dark and the ubiquitous all-consuming mud, a weapon could be felt far quicker than it could be seen. So survival at the front then was not a case of temporarily reordering the way that men engage with their surroundings. 
The horror of the front lines did not allow for half measures. In order to not only survive, but to also effectively wage war, a new relationship with landscape and the environment had to be constructed. And this involved the rapid genesis of a conflict culture, a society born from the muddy hell of the war that fundamentally understood its surroundings through the unique sensorial engagement it shared with it. This conflict culture only existed in the liminal space between 1914 and 18, a temporal void when modernity appeared to stall as the passage of time progressed. For during the First World War, man's industrial killing weapons sent the world back to the Stone Age, as modern technology murdered landscape on a terrifying scale. The majority of the surface evidence of the war has long since been covered over with modern life. Yet the evidence for this conflict culture can still be found all along places such as the Western Front. For beneath the surface, in a relatively untouched and hybrid world of tunnels and caves, can be found the structures of a culture that redefined its engagement with the world and a multidisciplinary approach to the research of this evidence. One that embodies, amongst other things, anthropology, archaeology, military history and philosophy, is revealing the DNA of a society that not only existed in the madness of the war, but also thrived. In the multitude of tunnel systems across France can be seen millions of tool marks where the chalk was painstakingly dug away, showing the care and the precision that was taken while digging in the darkness. The relevance of noise was paramount underground, as the sound of tools steadily chipping away at the chalk underbelly of the front could easily reveal the digger's location. So much so that often tunnels were carefully dug with just the bayonet and pieces of chalk were caught before they could hit the tunnel floor. Deep inside the Dragon Cavern on the Chamander Dam, the French and Germans lived and fought in a vast subterranean cavern for weeks on end. Here internal walls were mutually built in order to divide one side from the other, ensuring that the approach of the enemy could be heard in the darkness as it couldn't be seen. Technology such as geophones was utilised to listen for the enemy and the vibrations through the ground could also reveal what was happening on the surface as the constant movement of the earth caused by artillery barrages would cease in the moments before an attack. This presence of absence allowed events to be felt before they were seen and shows how members of this conflict culture had to adapt their sensorial engagement with the world. After all, in everyday European life in the 20th century, sudden and violent noise would imply danger and peace and quiet would signal safety. But the opposite was often the case on the front lines of the First World War. Lighting was also sparse beneath no man's land, further amplifying the relevance of touch over sight to guide movement. Beneath Vimy Ridge, tunnels have been discovered with grenades still in situ, in easy to find and logical places, lest the enemy suddenly broke through in the darkness. Archaeological research into the many carvings that line the subterranean voids also shows the relevance of light underground and presents unique research challenges as different lighting angles and types of illumination often change the aspect or meaning of the inscriptions being studied. Much of the graffiti found in this troglodyte world shows how men were quickly able to embrace their new culture. Statements carved in the chalk walls rarely, if ever, speak of the horrors of the war or the hardships the men were forced to endure.
Instead, they highlight national or regimental pride, or recall images of home and even the necessity of the conflict. And more often than not, these personal statements, of which there are thousands, stand in stark contrast to those of the more well-known chroniclers of the war, raising interesting questions as to how the conflict was really perceived by those that fought it. The multidisciplinary approach of conflict archaeology is only now starting to reveal the secrets of life on the front lines. And as research continues, a greater understanding of the magnitude of the First World War is being developed, one that explains how it was that human beings were able to negotiate a strange, violent and dangerous world by forming together into a unique conflict culture that survived and flourished by reordering its sensorial engagement with life. Thank you.